Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new uh, podcast interview for New Books uh, in East Asian Studies series, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Roman Paschka, and my interlocutor today is Takashi Miura, who is an assistant professor uh, with the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of uh, Arizona, and who published uh, last year, 2019, um, a book titled Agents of World Renewal, the Rise of Yonaoshi Gods in Japan, with um, uh, the University of uh, Hawaii Press. Um, hello, Takashi, and uh, thank you for um, agreeing to talk to us today. No, thank you. Thank you for your time, and thank you for this opportunity uh, for an interview. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start by asking you um, about yourself, about your uh, background. How did you become interested in um, in this field? How did the idea for the uh, research project come about? If you could tell us a few things about yourself. Sure. Um, so I have a very broad interest um, in uh, millenarian beliefs. Uh, I guess you could say also say apocalyptic beliefs. Um, the notion that uh, that the world is coming to an end. Um, a radically new world is going to emerge, often accompanied by, um, you know, destructive transformation of the world. Uh, this might have to do with the fact that I grew up in Japan in the 90s. Uh, this kind of rhetoric or discourse was very popular uh, then. I, I guess it's popular still now. Um, so I've always had that kind of interest. Uh, and that was initially the motive for... Um, pursuing education in, in religious studies, just wanting to find out more about these things in different parts of the world. Um, and for graduate school, I just ended up combining um, that broad interest in religious studies with my, I guess, fascination or also interest in, in the Bakumats period. I've always liked late Tokugawa history, um, late Tokyo society and the beginning of the Meiji period. And, and I, I just like that whole history. So for my graduate, uh, I guess my PhD project, I ended up combining my interest in millenarian beliefs and uh, late Tokyo history studies. And as an undergrad, I read a lot of books about, you know, late Tokyo history and religion. And I was told in those books that uh, the idea of world renewal, Yonawashi, uh, is an example of millenarian thinking in Japanese religion. So that is initially how I started working on this project uh, on Yonawashi or world renewal, thinking that uh, I would be able to study about millenarian or form of millenarianism in Japanese history. Uh, but it turned out the more I looked uh, the less millenarianism I found uh, in, in this book. And that's one of the central arguments in this book, that we have to really reevaluate the notion of um, world renewal or yonawashi in Japanese history or Japanese religious history. That's sort of the, uh, the how I came up with or how I uh, arrived at the, at the current uh, uh, book project. Okay. Uh, since you started um, talking about the book, um, may I ask you to give us um, some more details about uh, the book itself, the, the structure, the, the chapters, 
uh, maybe some of the most important points, um, sure. something that you would like the, the readers to take away from, from your book? Sure. Um, so the common narrative or the way that um, Toka history or Bakumat's history is presented is that um, as the power of the Tokugawa who was declining in the early to mid-19th century, uh, you know, people started to express desires for a new world, a radically new world order, uh, as it were. Uh, and the way they expressed this sentiment, this millenarian sentiment, was through the language of world renewal. And this sentiment manifested, for example, uh, very vividly in in a phenomena that's often described as Asian Aika in 1867, where people danced on the streets uh, calling for world, world renewal, uh, a new world to emerge. And that popular uprising uh, helped to uh, collapse the Tokugawa government and, and led to the rise of Japan or the birth of Japan as a modern nation. So, th- so there was this idea that world renewal or the idea of Yonaoshi in late Tokyo society was this millenarian impetus that made possible, that made Meiji restoration possible. And that, I think that's a very typical narrative. Um, what I do in this book is I challenge that narrative by, first of all, pointing out that the idea of Yonaoshi has a much longer history than simply the 19th century. It, it wasn't a Bakumatsu-specific concept, um, and that by simply tracing the the history of this or the conceptual history um, of Yonaoshi, we we see a very different uh, aspect of late Tokugawa history, and which is that uh, in this idea of world renewal doesn't really take on a millenarian. Uh, characteristic um, until actually the, the modern period. It, the, the, the idea of Yonaoshi becomes millenarian only in the modern period, well into the Meiji period. And by doing that, I, I problematize uh, this idea that um, people in late Tokyo society were um, you know, calling for this millenarian transformation of the world uh, and directly connecting that to the, the fall of the Bakfu, I, I try to problematize that narrative. That when we actually look at the um, the, the history of the, the concept of world renewal itself, we see a much more localized uh, visions or of communal renewal that in the late Tokyo period, Yonaoshi almost always had to do with specific economic problems like uh, high taxes, uh, high price of prices of goods, uh, and other specific economic problems that are based in local communities, and didn't really have anything to do with this millenarian remaking of the world. And my one of the, one of my arguments in the book is that this elaborate notion of world renewal or Yonawashi was basically a scholarly construction that came out of. Um, basically 20th century Japanese Marxist historiography, that there was this almost this desire to see uh, popular revolutionary fervor uh, in late Tokyo society and sort of retrospectively trying to locate these uh, uh, 
I guess, sentiments of revolution. And so my book is, in a sense, a, a, an attempt to undo all of that uh, in, in one respect uh, and try to understand Yonawashi or world renewal uh, in its own context, historical context, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, um, I was just uh, thinking that uh, when I was reading your book, um, yeah. you, um, I found it fascinating how you um, you show that uh, this whole Yonawashi uh, thing, the uh, increasing popularity of uh, Yonawashi in the late, um, starting with the late 18th century, um, actually is part of a bigger trend, if I understand your point correctly. Yes. Uh, right. I think you, you, uh, you talk about uh, this Yonawashi trend as part of an uh, interest in um, economic blessings, um, mm -hmm. immediate uh, relief that would be granted mm -hmm. by the uh, divinities and that Yonawashi provides this kind of relief, which is in many cases tangible, um, but you also stress the fact that um, this happens more uh, or rather within the community where the uh, Yonawashi god is uh, celebrated or uh, venerated. If, I, I hope I understand right. your point. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I, one, the way I approach the, the, the subject of Yonawashi or world renewal is, and thanks for bringing this up and reminding me of the main point of the book, is that uh, there are these, there's, there was a series of gods, uh, divinities that uh, were upheld as gods of world renewal, uh, and that these gods became very prevalent in late Tokugawa society, starting in the late uh, 18th century, actually, and their popularity lasted until uh, all the way up to the, the, the Taisho period in, in, in modern Japan. And what I argue in the book is that in the Tokugawa period, these you know, Yonaoshi gods, world-renewing gods, were basically uh, providers of economic benefits. Uh, these, to give you concrete examples, these would be uh, peasants who are deified as world renewing gods or world renewing kami uh, in, in peasant protests. Uh, I also talk about an example of uh, a low ranking samurai who assassinates basically uh, uh, an elder in the Tokugawa government. And um, because this elder was hugely unpopular, uh, the samurai gets uh, deified as a world-renewing uh, kami. And I frame it in terms of, yeah, this continuing trend in Japanese religion of, you know, emphasizing immediate this-worldly benefits, uh, right? And I do that partly because in order to demonstrate that this idea of world renewal or yonawashi didn't always have this subversive uh, characteristic that scholars tend to associate this concept with, um, that it, it's inadequate to try to understand this idea only in relation to, uh, say, uh, the Meiji Restoration or the transition between the Tokugawa and the Meiji periods. We have to contextualize it or place it uh, in, I guess, a longer historical uh, viewpoint or vantage point. And so uh, I also talk about the 
uh, about cases where Tokugawa bureaucrats get deified as world-renewing gods. And these were not uh, subversive figures at all. These were uh, bureaucrats, very loyal Tokugawa rulers, uh, who would implement these anti-poverty measures and would therefore get deified by the local communities as world-renewing gods. And that notion of Yonawashi, I think, is completely uh, opposite of what we have, uh, as scholars of Japan, have said about this idea. And I, I kind of go, go back to the point about world renewal or Yonawashi being a historiographical category that scholars have constructed over the years and how that's different from the actual expression Yonawashi that we find in primary sources. And that gap is something that I highlight uh, in the book. I found it absolutely fascinating how you um, you try to perform this um, anatomy of Yonawashi, <laughs> let's say reevaluation of Yonawashi. You present all these uh, cases, it's basically case studies, right? Um, mm-hmm. Between uh, the late 18th century and uh, early 20th century, uh, and there were two cases in uh, in particular that I found uh, really fascinating. Uh, the yeah. first one, in I, I think it's the one that you uh, just mentioned about the the, the samurai. Uh, you're talking about Sano Masakoto, right? Correct. Um, yeah. The episode uh, at the end of the 18th century that you actually. Uh, <laughs> describing the introduction to, to the book, right? Mm-hmm. And um, where he uh, kills the Tanuma family member, and that happens right. to co- coincide with the drop in the rice price, if I remember correctly, right? That's and right. So he uh, ends up being venerated by uh, by the people as a uh, an agent of uh, world renewal. And the other episode that I found right. fascinating was the Chichibu incident, uh, yeah. The uprising in the uh, Chichibu County, um, that was also, um, it, it was, first of all, it was nice to read for somebody who is interested in, I'm also, um, my the focus of my research is the Tokugawa period. My approach is totally different. Uh-huh. I'm looking at um, philosophy in the, in the Tokugawa mm-hmm. period. Um, sure. But it's really interesting to see all these uh, developments uh, happening in the uh, happening in the Tokugawa period, and uh, the yeah. re-evaluations that uh, we're doing right now. And um, mm-hmm. I actually had a question in mind. I'm sorry, I'm digressing, but I had a question in mind. Um, Go ahead. So, <clears throat> when looking at when performing this um, anatomy of or this re-evaluation of uh, Yonaoshi, um, you talk about how they these um, incidents or these cases of uh, Yonaoshi arose spontaneously uh, and mm-hmm. that they were not necessarily um, religious in nature. I mean, you, 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 you talk in your book about uh, how yeah. in order to document the whole Yonaoshi phenomenon, uh, you went beyond religious texts. So you looked at texts mm-hmm. uh, and documents materials that are not religious in nature. Um, right. And you mentioned uh, government records, official records, uh, memoirs, and, uh, and so on and so, so forth. Um, my question was, um, <clears throat> what is, the, uh, is there a balance between this uh, religious 
um, side or in the, the, the non-religious side to the uh, Yonaoshi phenomenon? Was it perceived mm-hmm. as something uh, completely, totally religious at the time or was it seen as um, this worldly? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a question that I've, I've been, I'm still actually thinking about uh, because the only, so, so I, I'm a religious studies uh, scholar uh, but this book, I, I don't, it's really hard to describe this book in terms of, you know, using traditional religious studies categories. Uh, for example, you know, is this a book about Shinto? Uh, I mean, I talk about Kami quite a bit, but, uh, I don't think the word Shinto ever comes up in any of the sources that I look at, um, is this a book about Buddhism? Well, I do talk about a few Buddhist temples, uh, but you know, it's the, this book is not an example of you know traditional sort of Buddhological methodology uh, um, in any sense. Uh, the only chapter that deals with, say, a religious organization or movement specifically is is the last chapter on Omoto, where I, where I talk about um, uh, the. Inter- reinterpretation of the idea of world renewal in in Omotokyo, in this particular religious new religion uh, in the late 19th century and early 20th century. But other than that, you're right that other sources, primary sources that I look at are uh, primarily, I guess you could say, non-religious texts. But in a sense, I mean, you you uh, if if we in a sense remove or we don't confine ourselves to, you know, our notion of, you know, what religion is, is supposed to be. Um, uh, I think that would allow for more, you know, flexibility in a sense, if, if we stick to the, you know, uh, our sort of modernist conception of what religion is supposed to be. Many of these gods that I'm talking about, these localized divinities would simply seem, uh, I guess, irrelevant or obscure, insignificant, uh, one of the aims of this book is to to highlight this religious practice on the ground, so to speak, without the um, uh, you know all the elaborate, I guess, uh, textual traditions that uh, that one might associate with a religious you know tradition in in, in the um, in, in the organizational sense. So. Uh, I don't really use the category of popular religion or folk religion either, because I, I, I think that those categories are also problematic. Uh, so, um, I guess one framework would be maybe this is an example of you know a study of local religions or community-based religions. You know what what did um, religious practices look look like for you know ordinary villagers, uh, members of local communities. Uh, where to draw that boundary between what counts as religion and what doesn't count as religion. I didn't really delve into that in this book. Uh, but uh, insofar as I'm talking about gods, uh, uh, I think I am dealing with uh, religion in, in the broadest sense. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the reasons why I asked this question is that um, when you're dealing with um, Tokugawa um, religion or philosophy, um, 
I think mm -hmm. sometimes I find it really problematic to use, to even use categories such as uh, religion or, sure. uh, or philosophy. And yeah. uh, in, in, in fact, I think you just uh, answered my next question, <laughs> but I'm just going to yeah. ask it anyway. So my next question was actually sure. about something that um, you state in the conclusion uh, to, to your book. Um, where you talk yeah. about, if I may quote, uh, I think it's page 176, uh, you say, the rise of Yonaoshi gods is a significant development that mostly took place outside the confines of former religious institutions and represents an example of religious traditions that do not conform neatly to established boundaries or classification schemes. Um, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, I think you just answered my question, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. but, but that's, a, that's a point that I think is worth uh, reflecting a little bit more in the sense that um, I, I think the field of religious studies has you know, moved on tremendously, progressed tremendously from you know, moving beyond the traditional modality of uh, you know, basically studying religious institutions. And people have been saying this for a while now, that wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to be able to study Uh, I guess non-institutionalized, or I guess more, um, or forms of religions that are more diffused in local communities, uh, and but it's often sort of mentioned as 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 an attachment or as an afterthought almost, and no one really, there aren't too many people who uh, engage in that kind of research, at least in the uh, North American academic context, and and I at the same time I also don't want to you know, uh, make this, you know, distinction, this clear distinction between institutionalized religion and non-institutionalized religions. I mean, I think these are the boundaries very porous. And I think, uh, well, the fact is that religious institutions always exist in, in, a, in a community or in communities, and they are never detached from, uh, you know, concrete uh, lives of ordinary people. So, so I don't want to make that distinction too clear either, but I do think that uh, we still have a tendency to rely on uh, doctrinal texts, that uh, religion proper is expressed in these uh, you know, uh, texts produced by religious professionals uh, and, and religious experts. And this book, uh, other than... The, the last chapter on Omoto uh, re really tries to uh, go beyond uh, that traditional boundary of religious studies. I'm not saying that that traditional methodology is you know, useless or meaningless, uh, but I think by looking at sources uh, uh, other than those and, and using uh, these other non-traditional sources, there are ways to bring new conversations uh, into religious studies or Japanese religious studies in particular. I see. Uh, that actually brings me to uh, my next question, uh, which is uh, still something that um, is uh, to be found in, the in your conclusion to, to the book, um, yeah. where you uh, it's the last part of the uh, conclusion, uh, actually, um, when you... Um, you write that you're not necessarily against the use of the term Yonaoshi as a historiographical, historiographical uh, category. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you say that scholars should be aware that the emic uh, Yonaoshi and the etic uh, Yonaoshi are different. Um, and 
yeah, I wanted to um, ask for uh, more details about um, about this, the, the distinction that you make here between the uh, emic yonaoshi and the etic uh, yonaoshi. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, this, again, I kind of go back to what, what I said earlier about, you know, how I originally started, you know, doing the research. Um, again, being interested in this uh, overall, this broad millenarian um, or study of millenarianism, I, I started this research thinking or hoping that Yonawashi, right, this notion of world renewal would be uh, an example of millenarianism in Japanese history or Japanese religion. And, and that's, you know, how I started on this path for to begin with. But then, you know, in the course of my research, I actually started looking at, you know, the expression Yonaoshi in primary sources. And at one point I realized that Yonaoshi that I see in primary sources is very different from uh, Yonaoshi as discussed by academics, scholars, mostly historians, right? And also religious studies scholars. Uh, again, in religious studies and also in, his, in historical terms, Yonaoshi or world renewal is often presented as this grand millenarian uh, conception. And that's what I refer to as the ethic uh, use or historiographical use of this term. And that term is often used in the context of discussing Tokugawa, late Tokugawa history and its transition into, uh, 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 into the Meiji period, that this, there's this popular millenarian uh, fervor in the, in the mid-19th century, right? Particularly strong uh, around the years uh, or you know, in the 1860s. But then I uh, realized all of that is very much um, distant from or is distinct from the actual expression Yonaoshi in primary sources. And that's the emic concept that I think I, uh, that I highlight in this book through the case studies or, or examples of Yonaoshi gods or world renewing gods. And um, I'm not, I don't want to, some people might think of this book as like a like anti-Marx book or something like that, uh, because the, the kind of histori- historiography that I'm critiquing in the book is, I think, is based is based on uh, a certain sense of normative, you know, 20th century Mar- Japanese Marxist historiography, uh, where everything is defined in terms of class struggle or you know subversive. Uh, characteristics of popular movements. But uh, when looking at the, the emic conception, we see a very different picture. As I said, it's not, Yonawashi was not always subversive. Even within the context of peasant protest, where uh, certain peasants were deified as world-renewing gods, Yonawashigami, uh, they would often make very concrete economic demands like lower taxes, lower prices of goods. And once those uh, the demands were fulfilled, uh, they would they would back down. Uh, they would, uh, as far as I know, that there were there were there was not a single case of uh, Yonaoshi God, you know, trying to take on the Tokugawa government or something like that, you know, in that direct, uh, in a, in a direct way, right? So there's that's the distinction between the the ethic and emic that I'm making, and and by 
making this distinction, and we, we all use scholarly categories, historic, historiographical categories. We can't not use those categories, uh, but there are sometimes um, cases where when we rely too much on this reified scholarly categories, we lose sight of um, you know, basic emic conceptual history. And uh, I guess I am saying that in this book uh, that we have been, I think, um, mis- misunderstanding this concept of world renewal as far as the you know, late Tokugawa society uh, is concerned. And uh, by looking at the emic history, we see a very different picture of late Tokugawa society. Okay. Uh, thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, in, um, the, uh, the other thing that I wanted to uh, ask you, which is not uh, necessarily, uh, or not directly related to the, to the book is that, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I follow you on Twitter. Um, sure. I'm not even sure this is an appropriate question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh-huh. Sure. Uh, and I see that periodically, uh, you tweet, uh, for example, images, representations of, uh, woodblock prints. Uh, yes. of representations of Yonaoshi gods. And sometimes you say, this is not in the book. This is not included in the book. All right, um, yes. My question was if this is an ongoing uh, research interest for you or... Um... Oh, you were, yes. I mean, so the yeah, images uh, that, I, uh, yeah, that I've been tweeting about, uh, images not in the book, uh, that came out out of my frustration of not being able to use all of these cool images that I had, uh, okay. <laughs> that I had collected over the years. Uh, but, you know, university presses don't, you know, they're, they're concerned about the cost of reproducing images, right? So, yeah. okay, I'll just use these images on Twitter uh, and kind of share <laughs> them uh, via this uh, social media platform. But the examples that I, you know, I, I mostly, I, I don't I do not do this as, as frequently as I used to, but I do post uh, woodblock prints of, uh, you know, earthquake catfish, the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, this legendary or this mythical catfish that supposedly caused a major earthquake in Edo in 1855. And this catfish, uh, basically through the earthquake, uh, uh, was said to revitalize the flow of wealth in Edo society and was deified or as, as treated as, uh, as, as a divinity of sort in these uh, woodblock prints. So I do uh, post about it uh, from time to time, but uh, those are directly sort of related to the book. Um, and, and that came out mostly out of my frustration of not being able to uh, <laughs> use all these cool images I had collected over the years. And uh, since we're talking about research projects, um, as we're approaching the end of the interview, um, I wanted to ask you about your current uh, research projects. What are you uh, working on right now? Yes. So I'm working on my uh, second project right now. uh, And I'm building off of my first book on Yonaoshi gods. And I'm looking at specifically at cases where peasants get deified as kami, often in the context of peasant pro- uh, protests. And in the first book, uh, in the, the book that was published, uh, you know, uh, last year, I talked about specific cases where the, the language of world renewal was invoked 
in peasant protests. But in the second book, I'm interested more broadly in the phenomenon of peasant deification. And I'm tentatively arguing that this is a development unique to the uh, Tokugawa period or to early modern Japan. In the medieval period, we, we see examples of you know, warriors and aristocrats, religious professionals becoming kami or be, being deified. But in the early modern period, we start to see uh, regular, ordinary villagers, peasants, being deified. And uh, I'm looking at the, the, the most famous example, prominent example of this is the case of Sakura Sogoro uh, from the Sakura domain. He was uh, 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 reportedly a peasant in, in the Sakura domain, present-day Chiba prefecture in the mid-17th century. He protested against the government uh, because of high taxes, but he was executed by the government. But um, he came back as a vengeful spirit to curse the domain lord and all the people that uh, contributed to his execution. And eventually he was deified. And I'm developing a project centered on this figure of Sogoro, Sakura Sogoro, uh, and also discussing more broadly this phenomenon of uh, peasant deification. That's, that's the next project. That sounds uh, fascinating, and um, I'm actually looking forward to your next book. And when it's out, um, maybe we have time to get together again for another interview. Sounds great. Okay. Uh, is there anything else um, you would like to add about the uh, the book? Um, yes, yes. Um, so, sure. okay. yes. So okay. who, yeah, who, yeah. who can benefit from this book? Uh, yes. Well, if you yeah. are, let's say... Uh, uh, a teacher or educator of Japanese history, and you would like, uh, say, an updated chapter on Eijanaika, or the phenomenon of, uh, you know, people uh, dancing on the streets, right, uh, on, on the eve of the Meiji Restoration. I have a chapter on that. I think that that mm -hmm. chapter can be useful uh, in talking about, you know, the... Uh, the Meiji Restoration or the mid-19th century in general. Uh, the chapter about the earthquake catfish, I think, uh, has very interesting images. Uh, I think your students would enjoy learning about that. Uh, and uh, overall, the book, uh, if, you, uh, if you would like an example of, uh, say, uh, uh, research that challenges this normative uh, history of late Tokugawa and early Meiji period, right? Uh, that uh, is based on uh, the subversive notion of world renewal or millenarian remaking of the world. Uh, I think my book would be a nice uh, antithesis or or uh, a counter viewpoint uh, to that, I guess, dominant historiographical paradigm in Japanese history. Or religious history. Okay, um, okay, Takashi. Um, thank you so much for um, talking to us um, about your uh, your book, and uh, good luck with the new research project. And hopefully, uh, we'll meet again to talk about your new book in the near future. Sounds great. Thank you. Um, thank you, Takashi. Uh, so this was um, Takashi Miura, who is an um, 
assistant professor with the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of uh, Arizona and author of Agents of World Renewal, The Rise of Yonal Shigats in Japan, published in 2019 by the University of uh, Hawaii Press. Thank you, Takashi, again. Uh, this uh, has been a new episode in the New Books in East Asian Studies series. Um, see you soon. <laughs>